0: Today on Pilots' Discretion, we're talking aviation safety with the AOPA Air Safety Institute's Richard McSpadden. He explains why good pilots make mistakes, what habits lead to safer flying, and what it was like to lead the Thunderbirds. Pilots' Discretion starts right now. Hi pilots, I'm John Zimmerman of Sporties, and today I'm joined by Richard McFadden, who has a long and distinguished aviation resume. He spent 20 years in the U.S. Air Force, including more than 100 flights as commander of the Thunderbirds. And today he flies everything from a Piper Super Cub to a Cessna Citation. Since 2017, he has been the executive director of the AOPA Air Safety Institute, and in that role he leads the association's efforts to reduce accidents in general aviation. I personally think he is one of aviation's most thoughtful writers on the subject of aviation safety. Richard, thanks for being on the podcast. John, thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your podcast. I'm
1: a big consumer of this medium podcast. So when you reached out, I was just delighted. So I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks.
0: Well, you and I could probably talk about aviation safety and pilot skills all day, but I want to start with a fascinating presentation you gave recently and you were exploring the topic of why good pilots make bad decisions. And I thought it was a great reminder that most accidents don't start with bad pilots or stupid people. These are normal people who make a mistake, and all of us could probably be there. So my question is, how can we recognize we're at risk for making one of those bad decisions? Are there warning signs we need to be looking out for?
1: Yeah, the, the, that uh, building that presentation helped me assess some of those. And it came from what you're talking about is um, me seeing good pilots who in the moment got caught in a bad decision. And it made me think not, oh, you know, what dumb pilots there were, what bad pilots there were. It was the opposite. It was like, if a pilot this good, this experienced, this qualified could make such a bad decision in the moment, I'm probably susceptible to that. So how can we be on guard against it? And the red flags that we see across you know that sort of uh that go across any kind of decision making is anytime you have a real personal interest in uh, the outcome of a decision it's very hard not to be biased in making that decision and of course as pilots that shows up with the whole get their itis thing and trying to show people a good time in aviation make some event that you promised you would be make it back to work you know something like that and then some of the other red flags um, that we see are relying too much on past experience. So if you have a tendency to say, well, I've done that before, what can happen is, um, you know, you've done that before, but maybe you got away with it. And so you start this whole sort of path on, on deviation that you haven't even recognized. So those are, uh, two of the bigger red flags that we see in and and the other one is just realizing that the way that our brain operates you know it wasn't wired to operate at um in the aviation sphere you know we, it was wired to sort of operate at zero Agl and a couple knots right <laughs> walking around doing day-to-day human things on the earth so sometimes we just have to be careful of uh, of you know the, the information that we're processing
0: yeah i think it's a great tip you give there that the more decisions you can make at zero knots and 1G and air conditioning, uh, often the better because the ones you make at 120 knots and in the moment sometimes are not our best decisions. As you say, that's not what we've sort of evolved to, to operate that way.
1: Yeah. And I've begun this other uh, sort of line of thought, John, that's really interesting. I'd like to do more studying it, but that is the the safety distinction between the plan And what we actually execute and we all know that on most most flights that we have we have a plan and then we go out and we execute and i think my my hypothesis is the closer that our execution is to the plan that we make the safer the flight is and whenever we have to ad-lib or do things make decisions kind of in the moment that's the other thing that really stood out about this research we were doing is that impromptu decisions in aviation are really a red flag because you haven't had time to think through all the dynamics that are involved in aviation to make it a safe operation. So that's a really intriguing uh, topic I'd like to explore
0: more. VFR into IMC accidents to me are a classic example of this. Good pilots making bad decisions and they've declined somewhat over the years, but at least to me it seems like they still happen all too often, which is frustrating given, you know, all the tools we have, all that we know about it. Can we solve that problem? I mean, does data link weather help? Do autopilots help? Does better planning help? What is the answer to tackling that? You know, that? I'm, I'm with you
1: on that, John. It's frustrating to me because weather related accidents have come down like all accidents have, but not near as fast as I would have thought they would come down. You know, we all fly with the Sirius XM satellite weather that you get piped in, you know, and you got these beautiful displays that come from Garmin and other manufacturers. We have so much good situational awareness now on the weather, and the forecasts are much more accurate than they used to be. And yet, still, we're seeing somewhere around, um, you know, I want to say it's somewhere around 18 in our last NAL report, VFR into IMC accidents, one and a half a month. And total weather related accidents, you know, is somewhere around 24 or something like that fatal, fatal accidents, I'm talking about. So, gosh, you think, That's two a month of fatal accidents that we're having that are weather-related. With all this new capability that we're having, I just don't get it. Um, And I think think you're right to draw that connection with, especially those accidents, all of them go back to decision-making. And the materials were there. Usually, the information was there, but something induced that pilot to make a poor decision or to just continue along this path of, a few not-so-optimum decisions that ultimately lead into a very bad decision.
0: Yeah, one of my tools I know, I do some flying in airplanes and a helicopter that are not, IF instrument equipped, so VFR is the only option. And I know one of the things I've caught myself on is trying to be disciplined about doing a debrief after a flight and think, alluding to what you said earlier, did that work out because that was the right plan and I did it right? Or did that work out because I got lucky? Because you want to be careful not to learn the wrong lesson from a flight. And I I feel like sometimes that can be particularly tempting when you talk about VFR and IMC as, well, I made it last time. And did I make it last time because I did the right thing? Or did I make it because I got lucky and it may not work out again?
1: Yeah. And one of the things that we see in VFR into IMC accidents is um, that pilots will make a good plan on the ground. And they'll even say, I'm going to go up and have a look. Or I'm going to go up and at this point, if I don't meet this certain criteria, then I'm, I'm going to turn around and come back. And what happens is they launch and now they kind of move into the execution mode. And I can't tell you how many times report after report I've, I've read where they went past the criteria that they made on the ground, convincing themselves once they're airborne that it's okay, they can make it through. And by the time they realize they can't, it's too late because... As you know, you know if once you lose your sort of attitude, reference, and awareness, even if you're trained to do it, it's really difficult to get that back. And if you're not trained to do it, you almost certainly won't.
0: Another example to me where this comes into play is new airplane transitions. And you wrote recently, I thought, a great description of the trap that all of us can fall into. You said, quote, airplanes will lure us, into, lure us to leap beyond our comfort level more quickly than we're ready. So what's your advice for somebody checking out in a new airplane, whether it's a high-performance airplane or or tailwheel? What's a way to know whether you're going too fast?
1: Yeah. You know, it's one of my favorite discussion topics when somebody will ask a question like, how do I improve my skill level or uh, my ability without going beyond my comfort level? And my answer usually is, you can't. You, You sort of have to push beyond that to learn something new. Of course, the balance and the delicacy is there... How far can you go before you become dangerous or treacherous? You know, you just go too far. And to me, the gateway is you you always try to push where you have the ability to retreat. Here's a great example. When I was picking up tailwheel flying again, I hadn't done it in years, and I bought a Super Cub. And, you know, if you fly a tailwheel, as you know, you want to be really good at crosswind landings because there will be the day you're tight on fuel or whatever the case where you've got to put this thing down in winds that you'd really rather not, but you got to have the skill to do it. And so um, I would go out here at Frederick on windy days and uh, on strong crosswind, and we have cross runways. So I would go out and see if I could get the airplane where I wanted it and feel nice and under control. And if it ever wasn't the case, I could just turn around and land into the wind on, you know, the cross runway. That's, a, that's an example of, you know, pushing to where you can retreat back. And when you're learning IFR and going into IMC, you know, the first time you begin as an IFR pilot, or if you've been rusty and you haven't done it in a while, or if you're going to a new airplane, I'll always fly a new airplane and a new avionics package under IFR rules in VMC conditions first before I then take it into the real hard, you know, IFR, IMC conditions.
0: Yeah, those are both excellent, excellent tips. Let's talk about aviation safety more broadly. The record has improved, as you mentioned, over the years, particularly from the 80s, 90s. But it feels like maybe it's plateaued a little bit or, or started to level out. What is success here? I mean, I think some people talk about zero accidents, which to me seems, you know, unreasonable. How good can we get with GA safety?
1: Well, I think zero should be the goal. I, I have to tell you, you know, the airlines made it to zero. Now, I'm careful with that comparison because those are people that do that for a living. They have massive programs, SMS programs, and this and that. So, you know, I'm not advocating that we get that tight and that regulated by any means. But the point is, that you can substantially improve, and we've come a long way in GA in 2019, or I'm sorry, in 20 fiscal year 2021, we had the safest year in GA we've had by a long shot. It was some 30% safer than the year before in terms of the fatal accident rate. And so, um, but yet still, 75% of the accidents that we did have, even a rec- in a, a record year, are, are pilot error. So that tells me that's how much more we could improve if we can figure out getting better and better against pilot error. So, you know, right now we hover around typically on any given year, we're around uh, 0.9 fatal accidents per 100,000 hours. 2021 was fantastic. We were around 0.73, but um, we could cut that in half. And I think that should be our goal is to cut that in half.
0: So in order to do that, it strikes me, we might need to change some of the focus of what we talk about, maybe in primary training, maybe in recurrent training. Are there things right now that we focus on that we shouldn't or at least gets too much attention? In other words, are there things pilots worry about that don't really cause accidents and vice versa? You know, the the data is disconnected from the training. That
1: is a really good question. I knew you were going to stump me on something. That (laughs) That is a really good question. I I would have to think more into that, John. I don't think I don't want to pass on that question because it's a really good one. Um, I don't have an answer off the top of my head though of what we should fundamentally change in terms of what we're teaching too much of or what we're not teaching.
0: Well, let me uh, to lead you possibly in one area I've been thinking about recently is when it comes to avionics training, particularly autopilot usage. Uh, I just did a survey of Pilatus PC-12 accidents an airplane I fly a fair amount. And I know in my initial training, lots of time was spent on engine failures. Single engine airplane, we've got to practice engine outs. And in that airplane at least, PT6, the engine doesn't quit. We spent very little time practicing autopilot anomalies, autopilot failures, all that. But if you look at the accident record, that is actually something that could get you in trouble. So I'm just, I'm wondering if there's something like that where we tend to worry about things that maybe keep us up at night, but there are there are risks lurking under the, the headlines there that we should be doing more training for.
1: Yeah, actually you make a good point about that. I'll tell you a really interesting story. I have a good friend who um, flies a TBM, and he was telling me he saw our recent release, a video we did on early analysis about a, um, a Learjet that was doing a circling approach and and lost control for some reason. Um, And he said, that got me to thinking, like, how much time I spend flying off the autopilot. And he so he started recording himself and looking, downloading his data. And on an average trip where he would go, you know, he's in a TBM, so that's about a three, four hour trip, something like that. He said, you know, on a total three-hour trip, you know how many times on average, how how many minutes on average I spend hand flying the airplane? Two minutes. Hmm. Two minutes. So he said, you know, I I began to realize that I take off, and as soon as I can, 400 feet, I put the autopilot on, flies it all the way down, flies the approach, I took the autopilot off, flare it, and land it. And I thought that was tremendous self-awareness on his part because he said, you know, That just is gonna lead to degraded skills at some point when I really need them the most, which is when the autopilot can't stay on because of turbulence or whatever the case may be. So um, that kind of backs up the point that you're making about learning how to integrate those new technologies that we have so well.
0: In addition to your work at AOPA, I know you chair the General Aviation Joint Steering Committee which is an important but somewhat unknown pilot group, uh, or at least maybe among some out there. So what does that group do? Yeah, you know what? It's a fantastic group. Um, I I
1: tend to be sort of skeptical of these big industry government uh, groups like this, but this one is uh, actually effective um, in that everybody, everybody who, you know, has a hand in safety or general aviation, From an association standpoint is part of this GAJSC. And it's data-driven. We'll take a look at the data. We have a whole process where we will decide to look at, for example, power plant failure. We'll establish a subcommittee that's made of, um, you know, engine manufacturers, uh, gamma representatives, EAA, AOPA, FAA will be in there. That subcommittee will go off and study dozens and dozens of power plant failure accidents to see what kind of lessons we can learn and what kind of enhancements we should recommend across the board. And because we have representatives from across the entire industry, let's say that that enhancement says, well, here's what we need. We need a better design of some kind of engine part. We need more awareness of pilots of this or that issue, and we need more training on all that. Then each of us that are part of that GAGSE take our piece and we go do it. You know, we go make a course on it if we're in ASI or we go, you know, use our, our, bra- our broad mouthpiece to communicate, you know, the issue. So that's kind of how the GAJSC works. And uh, very well respected both in terms of the industry associations and the FAA when the GAJSC comes out in favor of makes a recommendation. It's usually very well respected.
0: And what are some of the priorities there now? I I know I was looking at the website the other day, there's some fascinating research on there, but what are some of the hot topics that uh, you're studying?
1: I think right now we're looking at uh, system component failure power plant. And specifically, we're also trying to help with the understanding of there's a bunch of those that fall into the unknown category. Uh, And we'd like to see that number. And this has been a big push for Tim LeBaron in in the NTSB. It really annoys them when they just don't have enough data to understand why the engine failed. And so we'd like to figure out more around that whole Process. Um, the GAGSC was big behind pushing for weather cameras. You know, not just in Alaska where they've been so effective, but now bringing them broader outside of Alaska to areas in like Colorado and Hawaii and elsewhere where they could really be uh, a valuable use.
0: Richard, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with some more questions. An emergency is no time for instruction manuals or complicated adapter cables. That's why the pilots at Sporties designed the PJ2COM radio, the only radio with built-in aviation headset jacks. In an emergency, you can plug right in and stay focused on flying. The PJ2, winner of both Aviation Consumers Gear of the Year and Flying Magazine's Editor's Choice Award, is available for just $229. Visit Sporties.com slash PJ2 to order now
1: back to pilot's discretion
0: all right richard we have to talk about your time with the thunderbirds that's fascinating for anybody who's watched that show uh perform one of the parts that i find amazing about that whole team and the experience at least as i understand it from the outside is the brief and debrief process and there's a really rigorous process of continual improvement and examining what are we going to do and then what did we do Tell me a little bit about that. Take us inside that briefing room.
1: Yeah, it's a real key to making that safe, uh, John. If you if you look at that, you know, it's a, it, when I was there, they may have changed it some now. It was a 32-minute show, and people would say, don't you get tired of flying that same show over and over? And no, I, I never did because it was so challenging to do, and we had such tight standards that we were uh, grading ourselves to. We would grade every maneuver on a score of one to ten, and then we would aggregate that and and score the entire uh, show. And our average was about a seven. You know, every now and then we'd tickle into eight, eight and a half. Uh, Occasionally, we'd have a six. You know, I remember a five and a half one time. Um, So um, that was, and then going back and debriefing yourself to such a level of precision, it helped in what we were trying to do and represent the power, pride, and precision of the United States Air Force. It helped us do that the best we could, but it was also a real key to our safety being so focused on those minute details. It didn't leave room for gross errors.
0: Is there a lesson there for GA pilots? I mean, maybe not to that level, but just the habit of evaluating your performance. You know, we, we do it as student pilots where you're getting stage checks and check rides. Once you've got your certificate, is there a mindset there that could be useful for the rest yeah. of us?
1: Yeah, maybe so. I. I I do think it's hard when it's hard to critique yourself. Uh, some some people are good at it, but having that outside view to say no, 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 you you really did mess this up, and um, n- no, the winds really weren't the cause for it. You know, what I mean, <laughs> having somebody really hold your feet to the fire is really powerful. It's a hard thing to do though, and especially in GA because we mostly fly for recreation. So um, that dynamic. Um, it was even on the teams i will tell you that it would differ team to team and it was so personality based on how you deal with people and how you critique people you know if you come up and you just poked your finger in somebody's chest that's probably not going to go over too well <laughs> but if you have more of a uh t- gentle touch in how you're how you're communicating that you know we we're, we're all humans that goes that's more effective
0: what do you learn from formation flying i mean certainly at that level it's it's true formation flying but Uh, I know you've probably done some outside of the Air Force in the GA world. What does that teach you?
1: Yeah. You know what I tell people all the time? If they're interested in formation flying, get your your head in the right space. And that is like my favorite flying now is flying my Super Cub and backcountry flying. I just go flip on the mags and I can go airborne. I don't have to talk to anybody. And it's just a true sense of freedom to me. That's not formation flying. Formation flying is almost on the other end of the spectrum where you sit down with a group of your peers. You're going to brief everything you do from the t- from when you're going to get in. G- the GA organizations do this, like NADA and all that. When are you going to climb in? When are you going to crank? What are you going to taxi out in? You know, it's very uh, detailed. And you have to enjoy that and want to be a part of that. And, be, and realize that the, the enjoyment of the flight is the entire team performing well, your entire flight. And um, if you can't get yourself in that mindset and you're not ready to take uh, criticism and very detailed critiques, don't formation fly. You have no business doing it if you're not ready to put your mind in that space. So that would be uh, my biggest advice for people that want to go. And and I would caution, don't go fly in formation with just anybody Uh I, I would be very, you know, I, I am still to this day very careful who I will fly formation with. Um, and uh, somebody that's NADA certified or something like that would be my recommendation. You know, it can be a whole lot of fun. You just got to have your your mind in the right space for what you want to go do.
0: Is there a part of that Thunderbird show that seems easy or simple to an observer but is actually really hard when you're flying yeah, in a cockpit? Yeah, that,
1: that is such a good question, John, because yes. And if for everybody who's listening to this, I'll tell you um, what to look for. So the maneuvers themselves, when you come in front of the crowd and you do your loop or your roll or whatever, uh, they're very well thought out and you have certain minimum and maximum parameters you gotta hit, like for example, Whenever I would come want to come in and, and the Delta, the whole six ship was with me and, and perform a loop, I would have to be, you know, at show center, plus or minus three seconds of when uh, I said I would be there based on the show timing. And then you have to be, we had to be at like 450 knots and 83% power or something. Th- those numbers may not be exactly right, but that was that was it, right? And then, you know, at the top of the loop, you're going to hit at least 6,000 AGL. You're going to unload to a half a G. You better be at least 200 knots. And then you pull through, right? My point is all the way through that, you have parameters you're hitting. Now, here's the one that you don't where it's kind of sort of made up and it's free flow. One of the hardest things about the Thunderbird demonstration was every... 30 seconds, we wanted a maneuver in front of the crowd. So from the time the smoke goes off in one maneuver to it goes on in the next maneuver, no more than 30 seconds. So that deconfliction was a lot of work between me as the lead and, and the two solos. Well, let's say you have a day where you have really strong winds or really high turbulence. So the winds are coming down from show right at, you know, 30 knots. So when you go out to reposition for that next maneuver, how far do you go? How much do you hold that offset? What kind of speed do you hold? What kind of power do you hold? How much bank do you, do you use coming back in? How much vertical? All of that is completely on the fly because it's just real time you assessing it and where you are in your airplane and so forth. And so the next time you go to a show, look off to the right or left and watch that diamond or that delta in the reposition because the lead is working. That's where you're really working it, is in those repositions to make that timing right. Because not only do you have to make the timing right, but you have to do it in such a way that the formation can stay with you. And then you have to be back over show center with the right altitude, the right power setting, and the right speed to get into the next maneuver. And all of that is set up in the reposition that's done off the crowd.
0: Fascinating. So it just looks like magic dust on the ground. So Yeah, well, it's so much fun. You mentioned uh, a minute ago how much you love doing you know, backcountry flying, tailwheel airplanes, which I feel like I see more and more of these days. Why do you think that's taken off so much to where that's such a popular part of GA now? Really, really healthy and exciting part of the industry.
1: It is. I'm with you on that, John. Um, I, I can tell you guys at Sporties have embraced it. We certainly have because it's really growing the industry. It's bringing new faces into the industry. And um, sometimes there's some friction points, I have to tell you, between, I see this and I wonder if you see the same thing in GA. There's there's a sort of the pilots that fly for, let's call it adventure, just to go fly, to go see some places, to fly just to fly. And there's pilots that fly primarily for uh, transportation. You know, they go from point A to point B and they do enjoy flying and they love the whole aspect, but that's primarily their use case. And- there's sometimes some friction in between those two communities. And I see that some in the backcountry. Um, and so what I've found is trying to help, just help people understand, say, hey, we're all in aviation. We all love airplanes. So we can, we can kind of understand our common ground here where people are coming from. Um, I'm sorry I got off on a tangent answering your question, but um, the, uh, it is an exciting, growing part of GA and I, I don't know why or how it got so exciting, but I'm happy to see it. And I personally am part of the I'm, I'm part of the wave. I I love it. I think it's so much fun.
0: What's the safety record there? Do we have a handle on on how we are doing? And you know, more and more people flying tail draggers or flying off of dirt strips or grass strips. How are we doing there?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say because it's uh, whenever you want to measure safety in aviation or really anything, you have to normalize it for activity which is why in GA, we always talk about an accident rate. So that's the gross number of accidents, you know, over your activity level as a denominator. So it's really hard to get the activity level. So we know that the raw numbers have gone up in some cases in the back country, but we also know activity has gone up. So a couple of years ago, we were concerned about some of the accidents we saw in the backcountry, and specifically, what we saw is kind of what you and I are talking about, people wanting to get into flying specifically to do backcountry flying. We had people coming into GA specifically because they want to get into backcountry flying, and they were watching YouTube videos that were really exciting, and they didn't quite grasp what it took to demonstrate those skills that these people were showing. And so we saw some people really get themselves in trouble with going into one-way strips going in with overloaded airplanes, getting into, um, you know, winds, uh, situations that were too much for them. So uh, we developed this backcountry safety coalition to just sort of help try to get the word out to people that, hey, this is a lot of fun. Come back here and do it. But first, get some training and understand the skill level that's involved.
0: All right, Richard, it's time for our ready to copy segment. This is where I'll ask some semi-random questions and you give me your quick answer. So are you ready to copy? I'm ready to copy. You owned a Navion for many years. What's the best thing about that airplane?
1: Oh, stable, beautiful flying airplane. Um, roomy and comfortable. Uh, they're, they're fantastic airplanes.
0: You taught your son and daughter to fly, as I understand it. Would you recommend that, or is that rewarding, or is there some drawbacks to that?
1: Totally rewarding, and I had a good friend give me some advice that said, um, hey, be part of this. I soloed my child club. There's nothing quite like it. I would 100% recommend that to any parent.
0: What's the best airplane model the Thunderbirds have ever flown in their history? What's your favorite? Oh, man.
1: Uh, My favorite is the one that didn't last very long is the uh, Thunder Chief, the 105. Uh, And it wasn't a very good airshow airplane. It was a disaster. I think they only flew like five airplanes, but my God, what a beast of an airplane (laughs) that was. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, the old thud, that thing was, what an airplane that was.
0: Where's your favorite place to land one of those tail draggers when you're not on pavement?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely the grass. I have to say what's a sleeper is, you know, I've been a lot around Idaho. I've been a lot around Montana. Benville, Arkansas and the Fly Oz network that they have there. Have you? I don't know if you've flown out of there. but
0: I yeah. haven't, but I've heard from multiple people the same thing, that it's the, it's the best flying you've never heard of. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, that's a great way to state it. Yeah, 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 fantastic. And they have like 50 or 60 grass strips within like a 50-mile radius or something crazy like that.
0: Yeah, you guys at AOPA did a great video on that a little while back that I'd recommend listeners check out. Really, really beautiful looking place.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree.
0: All right, back to safety. Are autopilots a good thing or a bad thing for aviation safety when it comes to GA?
1: Oh, good thing. Good thing for helping with pilot load. Good thing for helping when you're in trouble to be able to hit the autopilots. It gives you a few minutes, seconds to rest and catch up to the airplane. Yeah, they're a great thing.
0: What counts more these days, mental skills like decision making or physical skills like stick and rudder?
1: Mental skills, but I I also think that's always been the case.
0: What's your favorite nickname, maybe not a generous one, for Navy pilots? (laughs) (laughs) Remembering we're a PG rated podcast. (laughs) No, I'm going to pass. We had so much fun when I was
1: with the Thunderbirds. We had such a good relationship with the Blues. I'll tell you a quick story. I know we're running out of time, but every year the Blues and the Thunderbirds would have a joint show where we'd get together and we would close it to the public. It was just for, just for us. And we'd have it at um, Pensacola one year and then we'd have it at Nellis the next year. And as you can imagine, there was some great flying one day and then that night there was some great partying. And so... Um, those, uh, those are some really fun times. And so we would pick, make fun of each other and fly with each other. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have nothing but really good things to say about the, the, the Navy and, and the aviators there.
0: All right. Very diplomatic. I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> Our last question is always the same on this podcast. You have one final flight, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going?
1: Oh, if I had to have one, if I were going in one final flight. And uh, that's a that's a really good question. Mm. Uh, I would I would go into the backcountry and I would make it a a big loop into uh, Idaho and Montana and uh, just gather some of the friends that I've made along the way. And there's a ton. I mean, it's so easy to make friends in the backcountry. Right. That that's what it would be. Because to me, that has so much of the fun. It's exciting flying, it's challenging flying, it's beautiful, and the people you meet are just fantastic.
0: It's amazing. I've asked that question many times on this show, and everybody has an airplane, everybody has a place, but most people also bring up people, other people they would want to share it with, which I think yeah. tells you an awful lot about why GA is so great.
1: It doesn't. It? Yeah, I, yeah, I agree.
0: Richard, thanks for being on the podcast. Happy
1: to do it. Thanks for what you do, John.
0: Thanks for listening to Pilots Discretion, brought to you by Sporties Pilot Shop, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. And if you have comments or guest ideas, email podcast at sporties.com. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilots Discretion.